It's a lonely planet, boy. Bring me songs from all your boys. Well, I'm a lonely planet, boy. I'm trying for your love. Whoa, 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 yeah. She picks me up. She's out driving in a car. Always telling me it's too far. How could she be driving past my home when you know I ain't got one? I'm so all alone. Whoa, 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 yeah. It's a lonely planet, boy. Bring me songs from all your boys. Well. I'm a lonely planet boy, I'm trying for your love. Whoa, 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 yeah. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in California in sunny Silver Lake in Malibu. Aloe was created by Bob Forrest, Evan Haynes, and their friends Bob and Jared as a place for addicts to get treated with compassion and connection instead of control. It's a place called Aloe. If you're a drug addict and you need a place to go to get help, I totally recommend going there. They treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including the dread severe mental illness. They have a team of clinicians with decades of experience. They have amenities that are just so crazy I can't help but list them. Sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy. I'm sure they have ping pong tables too. Aloe has it all. And if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I totally recommend going to Aloe. This episode is also brought to you by Haagen-Dazs chocolate chocolate chip ice. I'm just kidding. It's not really brought to you by Haagen-Dazs, but maybe one day it will be. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power and passion of the Dopey Patreon account. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Throw a few bucks, help out the cause. I've been threatening or promising all sorts of Patreon shit, but this coronavirus has got us all doing crazy stuff. Look for Patreon material coming soon. It'll come just when you least expect it. Also, this is the last week. I said last week was the last week, but this week is the last week that the old dopey store will have its stuff. So if there's anything you had a hankering for, go to www.dopeypodcast.com. If you guys want any snapbacks or ski hats or stickers or socks, Venmo me. Uh, I won't ship for like three or four weeks, so take your time. Um, enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave. 
and I'm feeling much better. Appreciate all the concern. Symptoms are just about gone. Life is good. How is it for you guys? Fucking the coronavirus is running amok all over the world. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. I am still super grateful not to be going to work. I have taken like a new interest in my children, which is, uh, you know, a double-edged sword. But I have to say, don't tell Linda, I think the baby finally likes me more than her. And I think, I think I'm the baby's favorite now, which is just a fascinating development. But uh, I do kind of, I've always been accused of thinking like a two-year-old. So me and Susan are now bonding and it's a good time. It's not bad. The other thing is like for anybody that questioned me for being on keto for three months, I have to say that keto gave me the cushion to really eat like a pig now. And I really, really have embraced it. And I have to say I've enjoyed every handful of cereal, every... Linda is buying these keto cookies, which are not great. They're these chocolate chip cookies that are like with fake chocolate chips. But what I've been doing to make them good is I've been taking chocolate buttercream icing and fucking smearing in between two keto cookies with some peanut butter. And this kind of stuff gets me through a, a pandemic. And, um, you know, as much as I like to make jokes, obviously it's very scary. Lots of people are out of work and I feel for everybody. And of course, lots of people are really sick and I really feel for them. So uh, if you're hurting or if you know somebody who's hurting, um, my heart goes out to you guys. I hope you guys stay healthy. I love to hear from you guys. I love our little uh, bubble of a community. Try to stay home. I mean, I can tell drug addicts not to go cop because there's a coronavirus. I know you guys are going to do what you want, but this thing is real. It's very easy to catch. Try to be careful. Wear gloves. Wear a mask. Use hand sanitizer. Do what the fuck is being suggested. And I think now's a great time to get clean. I mean, everyone accuses me of being too about recovery, but the world is so fucked up that if you got clean, nobody would even notice how fucked up you were. It's, a, it's an amazing opportunity for you. But uh, do your best. Stay safe. This episode, I think, is a very exciting episode because we have a pretty big-time guy on it. He's a guy I used to wait on at Katz's years ago. He is a big-time TV star, a big-time culinary uh, figure, and a big-time chef. He had a show uh, for years called Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern. Now he has a show called What's Eating America. It's on MSNBC. It's Andrew Zimmern. I mean, he's a pretty big, pretty big deal. And here he is on Dopey for your listening pleasure. This is very thrilling for me. On the phone, via phone, I have the great... Uh, I'm going to do my nice introduction before we even start you. My introduction is, he is a four-time James Beard Award winner. He is a TV star. He is a TV producer. He is a Jew, an alcoholic, a drug addict, a world traveler, a bug eater, a Katz's Deli regular, the great chef Andrew Zimmern. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I don't know, and I really wish we could have done it in person. I had such high hopes. <laughs> yeah, some things, you know, a uh, the the a plague. Yes. <laughs> uh, during the week of Passover. Yes. Uh, not seen since biblical times interfered, and I think that if it was going to have to have it was if it was going to be delayed by anything, I think we're glad that it happened that way. 
Oh yeah, I, I personally take it very personally. I think this is God intervening to not let you be in person for Dopey. I think it's just that's why this whole thing has happened. It's engineered. It's a pandemic. But it, inter- it interferes with with my you know half pastrami, half brisket sandwich. That's what I'm saying. How how are you coping? Where are you? Uh, I'm sitting in my office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, contemplating the work that I have to do today and what time I need to get home to throw uh, a leg of lamb onto the grill. Amazing. Let me ask you this. Do people call you chef still? Uh, yes. Do you like it? It's weird. Uh, well, it's, it, I understand it. Um, and it, I, I often get uh, people you know who I'm with let's say I go to a restaurant um, server comes up to the table and, and, and unknown restaurant in some other city other than the one I live in. And a, uh, a server will, you know, be taking the order and I'll have sparkling water and they'll just automatically just say, yes, chef. And it is a, it, it's a, it's a phrase that I'm not uncomfortable with uh, because I, uh, I, I mean, I currently am one. I, you know, my, my main restaurant is closed right now, hoping we're able to reopen shortly, uh, relatively shortly. Um, and it's a title that I've, I worked hard for. And, uh, in, in the industry, I use it, I, I use the same phrase with, with friends who have that title. Um, like a doctor, I don't think you ever sort of, if you stop practicing, people still call you doc. I don't know. It's, totally. It's it's weird the, the 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 thing that's fascinating to me is when people look at me and they may only know me as a as an eater on television or as a news presenter or some other job that I have and they look at me like you know what's that all about and then you have to explain it to them but that's that's just stuff inside my own head. Well, I love saying chef. Like I feel like somehow I'm important by calling you chef. Like I'm part of the team if I say, "Yes, chef. How are you, chef?" And I do catering and stuff at Katz's and when I show up in uh other people's restaurants or cafeterias, I love to overuse the the chef. So I so well, we, I, <laughs> the overuse of certain words um is uh equivalent uh to a southern uh, grandmother saying, "Oh, bless your heart!" It's double edged, and right. I, I think that's I think that's part of the charm in the overuse of it. Like many other things, of which I do all the time, at, at, at with plenty of words, and then people I'm with tell me I'm just being an asshole, uh, which is something that is, is a place that I drift into more often than I would like, but I think that's just, that's residual, uh, you know, wounding from my, my alcoholism and addiction that I constantly work at. I'm, I'm every year that goes by, I I think I suffer less and less from asshole slippage. Uh, but it, it happens. That's good. Um, are you doing, what do you, do you still go to meetings? And if you do, are you doing them online now? Uh, I do still go to meetings. Always have uh, for 28 years. I, I'm, I, I, over the years, I've become a lot more open-minded that recovery can be anything for anyone as long as they're happy and clean. 
you know, for me, I am, you know, I am an old fashioned alcoholic drug addict with an extremely low bottom. Yes. And I need meetings. Um, if I don't go to meetings, I can feel the difference. Uh, that difference isn't good. Um, and, uh, yes, I've been doing online meetings, uh, which I love, especially since the last time I tried online meetings years ago, they, it, the tech was so awful and it was just a, it was just a mess. And now uh, I was just in a zoom meeting, uh, two or three days ago, and it was so remarkably fabulous. Right. And uh, it was a bunch of people here, uh, local uh, friends in the program, and uh, I, I knew everyone in the meeting. There were 20-some-odd of us. Uh, but eight or nine were folks who had moved away over the last 10, 12 years, and I hadn't seen or been able to sit in a meeting with and to be able to sit in a meeting with them and – See there, and I remember when they came in to this program, just broken and and dead on the inside and outside, seemingly hopeless. And then I see them in this beautiful house with kids running by, and you know, just like life restored. It was such an amazing, amazing thing. Because when we go to when we attend regular meetings, you know, we're in a church basement or a room in a house somewhere, right? Yeah, and. Uh, to be able to see everyone sort of in they're at their desk at work, they're you know at their dining room table wherever they were, gave a little slice of life, and it took me about a day to figure out that 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 was something that had lifted me up and made me feel uh, like this thing really works, as if I needed other proof, but it was nice. No, I know what you mean. I, I haven't I hadn't done an online meeting uh, for I don't think ever, and I hadn't been to a meeting in like almost three weeks. So this morning I was like, you know, I got to do it. And I woke up at like 10 to six and I just like Googled AA meeting online. And I went to a six o'clock in the morning meeting and there were like 40 people in it. And it felt very much like almost my first meeting. Cause I didn't know anybody and it felt really weird. But by the end of it, I still got what I needed to get, you know? Sure. And it was, of it course. was, it was pretty amazing. Um, and it's the coolest thing is like, it's like that old adage that life finds a way. If you, if you're willing to do it, you're going to get something out of it. Yes, sir. I mean, that's the, that is the, uh, that's the big if, right? Meaning if you're willing to do something is the if. Correct. Right. Um, you and I have a lot in common us both being Jews from New York city who have worked in restaurants and are drug addicts and alcoholics. Yes. Um, when did uh, when did you notice the uh, the drug addict in you starting to emerge? What? How did it happen? Uh, gosh. Um, for sure, um, my senior year in high school, I knew something was wrong. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Dalton. Ah. I grew up on 71st street. So right around the corner. Yeah, totally. Uh, so the, he, you know, the, the time in which you realize something is wrong is oftentimes years, uh, further downstream than when you get to look back, um, looking back, I, I realized that I was using alcoholically. Um, I was 
actively uh, an addict from a much earlier age. I remember uh, sophomore year in high school uh, meeting some friends uh, before the first bell. This is like at 8 a.m. in the alley behind the school to smoke a joint. Yeah. And, you know, waking up in the morning and, you know, getting high is nothing new for people that like to smoke pot. And, you know, I mean, I, I'll make it up. I got up at 7 a.m. that morning. I got dressed. I ate some breakfast. I, you know, hopped the bus. I got up or walked, got up to school. An hour later, I'm smoking a joint in the alley, right? Uh, not that atypical uh, for uh, users. And I remember vividly, because this would happen several times a week, uh, everyone, you know, the four or five of us that met, you know, two or three would all take a hit or two off the joint and then just say, Hey, I'm when it made its way around the circle, I know I'm fine. I've had enough. Right. And me and one other guy would sit there and just pass it back and forth. And then, you know, until that, that tiny little joint was just, a, a millimeter long and burning and staining our fingers. Yeah. And then we would fight over the ashes. And that guy and I are the ones who are both, you know, 28 and 27 years sober, <laughs> right. respectively. And, and no wonder, in other words, we just didn't know when to stop. Other people actually were able to hit, Hey, I've had enough. I'm as high as I want to be at eight in the morning before going to school. That that thought just never occurred to me. So I realized looking back that uh, even then I was a complete total mess. Totally. And, and, uh, and when did you, uh, did you decide you wanted to, to live as a, as a food person, as a chef? When did, when did food and, and hospitality take over your brain? God, I was probably about five or six. Okay, so you knew um, that before you knew you liked to get high. You knew you loved food. Uh, well, it was another type of getting high for me. Um, I, I was, I just loved uh, everything about. My parents entertained a lot at home. They took us out to restaurants. They we traveled at a very early age. Um, we uh, we were lucky enough to have a, a second home that we spent our summers in and actually went to a lot on weekends in the winter as well. And, uh, you know, we, we, we gardened, we, we went fishing and cooked our fish on the beach, you know, and these memories all, uh, during the first five, six years of my life, uh, are the vivid ones for me. Um, I remember as a little kid, five years old sitting on a stool in my grandmother's apartment on West end Avenue in her teeny little kitchen and watch her cook for 25 people in a tiny little oven and four burners and a 80 year old refrigerator. Yeah. Um, I was, I was absolutely captivated by the whole process. And then all of that work and all of that, the, the scullery efforts were forgotten and there was this beautiful table sat and the, and, and the results of our work were on display. And I just remember, I, I became fascinated, addicted, captivated, and I would start to help my mom cook, my dad cook, my grandmother cook. Uh, you know, by the time I was eight or nine years old and, and you know, it's, it's, you know, well-documented lore in our family. Everyone in our family knew I was going to be in the food business. When I was 14, my father said, you have to get a job. 
you know, no more lolling around in the summertime. Uh, you're not a kid anymore. Get a job. And uh, I went out to get a job. Now, all of my friends uh, got daytime jobs working at the uh, local landscaping company or the uh, the pool company. You know, it was manual labor. Mm-hmm. They needed lots of bodies. Um, you, you could hang out together. Uh, you know, you wheelbarrowed dirt around. You, you, you dug trenches for, you know, water sprinkler systems, whatever the the the, issue, the job was. And I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. Who wants to get up at 4.30 in the morning uh, and work till 3, 4 in the afternoon? It, was just seemed, it seemed absolutely outrageous to me because, uh, number one, I was a spoiled little shit that didn't want to do any work. Yes. But I also, during the day, wanted to be at the beach. I wanted to hang out with girls. I wanted to do all the stuff that I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. You know, I was – even at, at that age was the king baby. I want what I want and I want it now. Mm-hmm. And I, I also then on the, on the flip side of things had a real interest vocationally and that was in food. So I begged my parents to let me work in a local restaurant uh, on the Montauk highway as you came into East Hampton called the Quiet Clam. Some friends of ours, Maggie and Irene, owned the restaurant in those years, uh, and you know they said, "Sure, have Andrew come in." And I worked nights in that restaurant uh, almost all the way through high school uh, during the summers, um, and you know it began a, a, a love affair with restaurants. I mean, the first day I was there, you know, the drama of the theater of, of every night—it's a different show of the, uh, you know, the customers hearing the, the tinkle of a crispy gin and tonic as it crossed the dining room, the sound of clam shucking, you know, of lobster boiling, of, of you know, corn being munched in the dining room. It just, it, it was just absolutely the most romantic thing I'd ever experienced. I love that. And uh, and how soon after did you start at the Quiet Clam? Did you experience how how alcohol and drug laden the kitchen is? Uh, about oh god, I'd have to say at least three minutes right. after I got there on the first day. <laughs> right, maybe two minutes. Um, the uh, I walked in. Uh, you know the. the there were no forms to fill. This is this is the, the mid seventies, right? I'm with you. So there was no like you know sit down, fill out these forms. There was no onboarding with the new employee uh, manual or other type of instruction. Um, the sexual harassment guidelines hadn't yeah, come I mean, out yet. Nothing, nothing like that. Uh, a guy named Mitch, who was a big old hippie, uh, you know, walked me. Was told to walk me to the back and get me an apron. Uh, he told me not to, his experience, don't wear, I was wearing shorts. He said, don't wear shorts, you know, if shit's going to get on your legs and you could burn yourself, so wear pants, wear hard-toed shoes. I thought, okay, that's good advice. Uh, and he threw me the apron and he opened the back door of the restaurant, you know, where delivery sort of came in. And, you know, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and there's the nighttime crew and, you know, everyone's like drinking a beer and smoking a joint. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is what goes on here. And uh, I had I had already uh, experienced both of those things. 
and so I was like, oh, this is great. I belong here. And right. I looked around and I felt I felt like a raindrop entering the river. I'm like, oh, I found my people. Right. You know, I, I have they're arrived. funny. They're funny. They're smart. Uh, I want to be like them. Uh, they're anarchists. They're iconoclasts. They they come together as a team when they need to be. Um, they, I mean, just they had they had everything I wanted and uh, and the lifestyle to go with it. And uh, I just I it was love at first sight. I love that. It's so perfect because you know food, you knew getting high, you knew alcohol, and all of it is right at your fingertips. It's right there. And by the way, I, w- I would also say that there was something uh, – I mean, when the young kid shows up just fawning uh, all over these cooks and uh, porters and our prep guy, we all helped out in the dish room in this restaurant. There was no dishwasher. Um and there's a teenage, a young teenager there. Everybody wants to be the first one to, uh, you know, corrupt him further. Um, so I was in a really charmed uh, position, and and I knew it, and I knew it. I, I loved that restaurant. It's like it's like a great uh, '70s stoner movie coming to life. The kid at the restaurant, and it's you know everyone wants to get you high. It's kind of like the innocent thing before the shit hits the fan, right? It's it's like the food version, the food version of Almost Famous. Right, that's funny. The Cameron Crowe uh, movie. Sure, sure, I love that movie. Um, and when when does it start to get a little bit dark? Like, when does it go from this incredibly bucolic, idealized, almost innocent thing to something that's a little bit dangerous? Uh, Very quickly, Um, almost immediately. Uh, And that, I think, speaks to uh, what was often referred to by old timers as, you know, real alcoholism, real addiction. Right. right? Um, There was no gradual ramping for me. Uh, within a very short amount of time in, during my high school years, um, I went from, uh, you know, trying, you know, trying weed to, uh, you know, full blown New York city garbage head, uh, snorting Coke, taking mushrooms, you know, experimenting with, uh, heroin, uh, almost daily cocaine use, um, you know, uh, Quaaludes, Placidols, you know, Percocet, Percodan, anything that I could get to bring me down if I had, uh, was snorting too much Coke. Um, and that all happened before I graduated high school. Right. Um, so along the way to get to that place, there were tons of consequences, social isolationism, uh, rejection by friends, um, you know, the danger that I put myself and others in, uh, I mean, you can look back and just keep listing them ad nauseum. Uh, I think I was a freshman. Well, my freshman year in college before the first day of classes, um, I found myself in a police precinct in Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, there, 
you know, you go as a freshman a week before classes start and do all your freshman orientation, all the rest of that. And I was uh, I grew up in New York City. So, you know, I had a very high tolerance for drugs and, <laughs> yeah. you know, had exper- you know, was was more of a druggie. And I bumped into kids who were from other states and, you know, suburb suburban America who, you know, occasionally tried drugs, but mostly they drank. Right. And I I had never even seen uh, grain alcohol ever clear. I'd never seen it. Uh, I'd heard of it once or twice, but it wasn't even on my radar screen. So I went to a keg party, I don't know, three, four days into freshman orientation, and someone gave me, you know, some Hawaiian punch and Everclear. And the next thing I know, I, I, you know, kind of came to and I was on a bench in a police station and um, the campus cops uh, came and picked me up and brought me back to uh, where I was living. And, uh, you know, they had some sort of whatever deal with the local, you know, uh, police say, you know, first timer kids will come get him and discipline, discipline him on campus. And I, I, part of that discipline, uh, was meeting with a, uh, a counselor, an addiction specialist. And so I met with a gentleman named D.B. Brown. Uh, he was a, uh, MSW and addiction counselor. And, uh, he met with me, we talked for a couple hours and I didn't realize it, but along the way he was asking me a lot of the questions that are part of the Jelinek test. And he said, look, you're, you're 18 years old and you're chronic on the Jelinek scale, you know? And he says, if you, he was the first person who told me that, my disease, A, that I had a disease, and B, that it only led to jails, institutions, and death. So he identified, you, he identified you immediately. Immediately. Right. Now, I'm 18. I told him to go screw himself. I mean, I'm a, I'm a superhero. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm indefatigable. I'm, you know, any 18-year-old in that position is, you know. Uh, and I just kept, you know, I kept on going uh, for another 12 years. And every minute of every day, it got worse. It never got better. Um, it was uh, it was a very slow slog to the bottom with a lot of very painful stops along the way. Right. So there was no period in your 20s working at restaurants in New York doing drugs and you were like, I have this under control. Uh, I knew I didn't have it under control. Uh, I was kicked out of college twice. I went to Europe and Asia uh, to cook. I went to New York City and cooked. I kept honing my craft. I experienced what a lot of people in recovery will refer to as hyper-responsibility and hyper-irresponsibility. You know, you'll hold it together somewhere for days, weeks, months, and then erupt in a bout of uh, self-centeredness and, you know, not show up to work for three days. And one of the things about the restaurant business, if you have some talent, uh, you're let back in the door. If you don't have some talent, you're told to go work somewhere else. Um, you go to Katz's if you don't have talent. I'm just kidding. Well, a a lot of, you know, I I remember, uh, very early on in my twenties, I, uh, had been working for like three or four days somewhere uh, and then didn't show up for two days and came back. And 
because I had worked for six months in a restaurant in, in Italy and had sort of mastered the, the risotto station in that restaurant, um, I had a skill set that in the 80s was very much in demand in New York. So in the 80s in New York, you had the, the explosion of these 150, 160-seat restaurants. Italian food was extremely of the moment. Uh, but you didn't have kitchens with a lot of space and a lot of burners. So typically, you would have five, six risotto items, or at least this restaurant that I was uh, working in, a very fancy Italian restaurant, but big grand cafe style. And uh, <laughs> there were like five or six risottos on the menu. There was always a special risotto, but there were only four burners in the risotto station. Um, now, to juggle that and to execute that properly without pre-cooking uh, your products, uh, your your dishes, um, requires uh, a high level of experience. Now, luckily, I had it. So whenever I would show back up to work, they were like, they would look at me, they would yell and scream at me. The chef didn't speak English. She spoke Italian. Mostly the general manager of the restaurant dealt with disciplinary issues for the chef. Um, and he would just shake his head and throw an apron at me because, you know, and, and I knew it too. They, they, until they found someone that could put out, you know, a hundred portions, 120 portions of risotto, five different kinds in a three or four hour period on four burners, I had a job. They needed and you. They knew they had something special in you. And and no matter how fucked up you were, they were like, well, that's our guy, right? Uh, yes. And things are overlooked much in the same way. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the Stockholm syndrome, it's the Patty Hearst syndrome, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, it is it is a constant uh, constant reminder that um, just like families, the people we work with, uh, all all of the people in our lives, um, we 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 trash them all as addicts. You mean? Yes. Yes. Well, I hear you. Um, I watched uh, What's Eating America today. I watched the Chef's Table episode, and it was uh, incredibly moving to me. And um, Dopey Nation, if you don't know this show, there's a show on MSNBC. It's called What's Eating America. It's made and, and hosted by Chef Andrew. And, um, and it was very, very personal, this episode, because it really tells about your journey as an addict. And um, can you still hear me? Yeah. All right, great. Um, and I was listening, he was telling a story, you were telling a story about um, copping heroin on the Lower East Side uh, by Veselka Cafe. Um, what kind of a heroin habit did you have at that point, and, and how did that come about? Uh, senior year in high school, uh, as I guess 78 turned into 79, Right. Um, I went to... Um, uh, I went to a New Year's Eve party at a famous musician's house that I got invited to with a group of friends through one of those friends' older siblings. Was it Johnny Thunders? And, <laughs> I wish. Okay. Um, 
and uh, I saw I saw Johnny Thunders play a lot on on his own with the New York Dolls. I mean, that was my era growing up in New York. Yeah. Um, it was I didn't think there was anything wrong with him just keeling over in the middle of the set and falling onto the stage and the show was over, um, which <laughs> shows you where my my mindset was. Um, and uh but just by luck of the draw, I found myself in a room with the host of the party and I thought he was lining out cocaine and I went and snorted it and I realized right away it was not cocaine and it was very, very uh, high grade heroin. Um, a half hour later, I was semi-conscious lying on the bathroom floor. I had thrown up and then just got higher than, I mean, I had never been that high in my life. And friends of mine were looking down at me. I remember it vividly. And I was looking up at them and I couldn't speak. And in my brain, I was just trying to tell them, I'm fine. I'm better than ever. I've never felt this good in my life. Right. Uh, and I could hear them like, is he okay? Blah, 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 blah. One thing led to another. And I wound up back at my house um, and, you know, just high as hell from four in the morning all night long. I just... You know, I watched creature feature movies on WOR and, you know, spent the rest of the evening uh, into the early morning hours just watching TV and then fell asleep. And uh, and then like any other good addict, I just, you know, literally chased that high uh, for the rest of my using days. It started very slowly. I realized I couldn't use that much. I would snort just a little bit. Uh, I I learned that. I, I would get almost I would get so incapacitated uh, snorting dope that um, I would mix it with heroin uh, with cocaine and keep it in a little vial. And that sort of became my I would snort this speedball mixture uh, throughout my day just to keep me kind of even keeled. Um, it was, I mean, a horrific existence. Um, I did horrific things for it. Um I was a complete and total mess. And it, it, it really did define, um, you know, I, I didn't snort as much heroin in college. Once I got out of college and I was back living in New York City, it became a much more regular part of my using day. Totally. And uh, and you described a story where you copped from a woman down the street from the Celta and you found her uh, laid out, like knotted out, right? Well, here here's the thing that I would I would go and I would meet my friend. Uh, well, I would meet this woman, Linda. Uh, she and her boyfriend lived in a one room studio apartment, windowless uh, center, <laughs> center of the building down in Alphabet City. Right. And a lot of my friends didn't want to go down there. Uh, it was scary to them, whatever. I thought it was fantastic. I would go down there, I would buy, you know, two bundles of dope, you know, 20 little tenth of a gram bundles. And um, and then this friend would take three or four, this person would take three or four, and I'd wind up with four or five myself uh, for free or more at a discounted price, right? Typical kind of, you know, micro-dealing mentality with my friends. Totally. Um, and... Um, one day I went down there and 
the door was slightly ajar to their apartment, which was very unusual because they were extremely paranoid and obviously they kept drugs and money in the apartment. And I opened the door and, uh, you know, I did not, Linda's boyfriend was rolled over on his side on a couch. Linda was in a chair with a needle in her arm. Mm. And, uh, I was, I mean, I can remember that moment because I, I was, I was so petrified and so scared. It was the I had never seen that before, and I was 23, 24 years old. Um, and uh, my experience now tells me Linda was dead, um, but I can't say that for sure. Right. And uh, I just, I literally, I just backed out of the apartment and. Uh, I mean, it was like in a movie. I ran down the stairs. I ran for two or three blocks. Um, I started crying. I just emotionally broke down. Um, I I remember, you know, begging the czar something in the universe to make this stop. You know, wh- wh- where had my life brought me? Um and, and you didn't for a second think, where's the dope? I need to get the dope. I need to, you know, what you got no, just so scared you ran out of there. I was just petrified. Um, and, you know, within 10 minutes, I'm on the phone with my friends trying to figure out another dealer to go buy from. Sure. Um, because that's that's what we do. We have this incredible, you know, there's this moment. I had a moment of clarity right there uh, on the street Um, but it just didn't last very long. Um, it took me seven more years to have a moment of clarity that allowed me, uh, the grace, uh, to swing into, uh, sobriety. Right. It's those moments that are so strange too, because you get them and then in that moment, you're terrified. You know that this is basically the end of every line. And then the next thought is, well, where am I going to get the dope now? And you kind of get another few years to squeeze out of it. I, my life went on like that, um, you know, from like 25 till like 40, basically, like with these moments coming in and quickly getting replaced. Like, I don't like how I feel unless I have drugs in me, you know, Um what were some of the the end notes of your of your runs? Like like how did you realize that you couldn't go on anymore? Um I went I, I was homeless for about 11 months before I sobered up. Um at the, well I was homeless for 11 months. I then broke into uh a friend's mother's apartment, stole some jewelry, hocked it in New Jersey, wow. got a couple hundred dollars together, got a room in a flop house hotel called the San Pedro, no longer in existence. Um, got a case of Popov vodka. It had just come out in plastic bottles. I thought that was the greatest thing in the whole world. It wasn't so heavy. Um, and went into a room and just tried to drink myself to death. And three, four days later, uh, I came to again, um, you know, cause I really wasn't sleeping and waking up. Right. Um, and I was just passing out. Right. Um, 
I, I realized that I wasn't dying, you know, that what and I was, I mean, I was literally drinking my, I, I, by the way, I had given up <clears throat> hard drugs three years earlier because I knew something was wrong. Right. I mean, just in that bartering with myself and other people, I wound up kicking hard drugs. Um, and exclusively uh, drinking, and my life got way worse, way fast, and I got homeless. I mean, you know, the converting from uh, drugs and alcohol to just alcohol just brought me to a bottom that I never knew was possible. Um, no magic, just the end of the world. It, I mean, just, I mean, absolutely uncontrolled lunacy. Uh, and uh, so I tried to drink myself that didn't work. I woke up one morning and I had that, um, uh, you know, that moment of clarity, uh, that people, um, that people talk about. Um, and I, I, for the first time since I was a kid, I didn't have that ACE bandage of pressure that constrictive anxiety in my chest. And I, I called my best friend and said, help me something I had never asked anyone. Um, and, uh, <laughs> it is, um, you know, two days later I was on a plane going to uh, Minnesota. So you can't, can you think of what it was or was you actually got to have that white light moment? You had, you had suicidal thoughts and, and you acted on the suicide and you didn't die. And then all of a sudden you were like, I want to get out of this. It really came to you like that. Yeah. I mean, there was, I, I, you know, that moment eight years, seven, eight years earlier, you know, finding what I presume was a dead person in a room overdosed and not doing the right thing. Right. Right. I didn't call the police. I didn't call for help. I didn't see, I just, I was so scared. I just ran out of there and then just emotionally collapsed. That wasn't enough. Right. That wasn't enough, uh, to get me to stop. I endured the pain of addiction, alcoholism, and the consequences and kept hurting people. I had become a user of people and a taker of things and continued on that way. That wasn't enough. But that that morning, you know, waking up in that Flophouse Hotel, not dead, I was – and I can only describe it now as, you know, a form of divine intervention. You know, whatever you believe in – that's bigger than you are, um, you know, something changed. Cause it certainly wasn't me. I had tried everything for years and years to get well. And so did a lot of other people, you know, cops and teachers and friends sure. and girlfriends and all the rest, you know, and so all of a sudden as if, as if by magic, but I knew in my heart, it wasn't magic. Uh, something intervened, um, and I, I picked up the phone and asked for help, something I never did. Um, and looking back on it now, you know, 28 years later, um, it is, uh, 
you know, I now have a relationship with, you know, uh, a power greater than myself that, you know, is part of my personal spiritual system that, you know, I believe absolutely 100% with every ounce of my rational being uh, that uh, it was a form of divine inspiration. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, one thing that I always struggled with, you know, it took me forever to get clean, and I definitely, I, that, it was something that happened to me over time. Like, uh, like I didn't have a white light moment uh, for a long time, and I, I was in and out of treatment, and I was in and out of meetings, and I was in and out of detoxes over and over and over and over, and I and I really was incredibly resistant um, to getting well. Uh, when you found yourself at Hazelden, were you all in or were you feeling any residual resistance? Uh, well, I, I was in and out. I mean, you're constantly taking back, right? Yeah. It's not a um, – I don't think everyone just is like, oh, I'm going to give up my – not only my – the thing that I'm most in love with, but the tool with which I'm using to navigate life. <laughs> yeah. I'm using it – I'm using it to – compensate for emotional deficiencies you know it's my crutch it's my superhero cape it's my it's my lover it's my everything right i mean everything was filtered through my drugs and alcohol um and you then have to make a huge pivot and not only be dry give those things up but then you actually have to pursue the healing and change your way of thinking and your way of living that is a monstrous task. Right. Um, so, of course, you're like, I will, I won't, I will, I won't, I will, I won't. But once you're engaged in that process, along the way in the early days of recovery, if you are paying attention, and that's all that older, more experienced, sober people told me. They were like, show up and pay attention. And I did. And I noticed miraculous things begin to happen to me. I was feeling messages being delivered from the universe to me that I was, that I used as motivation or confirmation that in fact I was on the right path. Um, and I put one foot in front of the other and I actually did what I was told for the first time in my life. So, you know, the, one of the extra added benefits, um, was, you know, going to a meeting every day, uh, getting a, a sponsor in a 12 step program, working the steps, hanging out with people that were actively engaged in sobriety, um, and, uh, sticking with the winners. And I did that. And probably the, the, the luckiest piece of that whole equation was that the group that I found myself most drawn to, uh, we're a bunch of funny, smart ass, you know, East coasters that also wound up in, uh, Minnesota, uh, via the underground railroad to all the treatment centers out here. Totally. But what, what was really lucky for me was that those people were, uh, obsessed with service work. And, you know, so, you know, we would leave our you know, a meeting at eight o'clock at night, stop at some, you know, greasy spoon, have a cup of coffee, wolf down some food and then go, you know, uh, you know, take people to detox, meet with a family in trouble, 
um, stop by someone's hospital room. I mean, just everything that that some of the older guys in the group thought was, you know, you know, on tap for that day. And that's just what we did. Um, and the benefits of service work are are something that you know changed my life as much as any other single piece of the the program of recovery that was laid at my feet. Um, it is still my guiding principle today. Um, I fully spend a third of my time every week engaged in service work, not just in the recovering community, uh, but in the global community. Um, I, I, you know, after 10, 12 years uh, as my, you know, clean, and, and I've been sober a little over 28, um, all of a sudden I, my professional life started to catch a little fire. Right. And I began to have at first a local platform and then a national platform and then an international platform. What about the parallels between uh, service work around 12 step and your chosen profession of, of doing service, like serving food and, and being around people? Was there a crazy well, parallel? And, well, I mean, I, I recognized it and it certainly uh, became an easy thing to do. Right. If you know how to cook, you can go, you know you know, feed some homeless people. And having been homeless myself, um, it was an area that I gravitated towards. Um, one of the things that I, um, one of the things that really, you know, really got me going was I was talking to my, uh, my sponsor at one point, you know, 12, 13 years clean and um, he said to me, uh, I was talking about how just filled with joy that I was about a particular service commitment that I was involved in. Um, and uh, he pointed out to me uh, at the bottom of page 84 uh, in uh, the text that one 12-step group uh, uses, um, there is a, a summary of uh, what some people confuse with the 11th step, but it's really the 10th step. And it, at the bottom of that page, um, it says if you're, if you're feeling a series of negative emotions, anger, jealousy, resentment, fear, etc., you take a series of actions and the final uh, suggestion in that paragraph about what action to take is to do uh, something for another human being uh, because love and tolerance is our code. Yes. And my, my sponsor pointed out it does not say in service of another alcoholic, which in many other places in the text it actually specifically calls out. And that blew my mind. And the context in which we started talking about it was um, if I'm doing 10 steps eight, nine times a day because I'm making mistakes or I'm feeling these emotions or I'm hurting another human being and I need to do something to get my head into a right space and I'm taking those actions that are at the bottom of that page, um, why not just focus on one thing at first to make it a habit and – so the suggestion was, why don't you call your mom? 
And I said, well, I'll be calling my mom seven times a day. And yeah. he said, well, don't you think she'd love that? And I was just like, yeah, she would. If I called my father twice in the same week, he would say to me, why are you calling me a second time? We speak every Wednesday night. I mean, he was just a tough guy, you know, old time New Yorker, World War II vet, you know, crusty old fart. I got you. My mother, if I called her 20 times a day, it wouldn't be enough. Right. Right. She just loved hearing my voice, et cetera. So I started to get into this habit of, I would wound up calling her many times a day. And then I slowly transitioned that element of service into doing other things, volunteerism. And, you know, now here I am, you know, decades later and doing service work for international NGOs. I'm on the board of national organizations. I fully devote a third of my life to charitable efforts, um, you know, uh, much to the upset of a lot of my business partners who would rather see me doing other things with my time, but they understand and have come to understand that this is how I'm able to stay sane and sober and happy. Um, and as someone who continues to, you know, I mean, I do not have a daily struggle, uh, with drinking and drugging. Um, I know that I'm always an arm's length from that drink or drug, but I'm not worried about getting high today. I am worried about being an asshole right. today. I am worried about uh, offending someone. I am worried about um, making a, a snap decision based on emotion that will later put me in a position to be hurt or hurt other people. So the way that I combat that is by surrounding myself with as much service work as I possibly can. And that saves me. Right. It's also just a way to take your mind off yourself. It's this amazing pressure relief valve, you know, of course. And and do you, do you find a, I mean, you have such a, a crazy story of, uh, obvious like the near near death and depravity and poverty to being this incredible success you know four-time uh, james beard award winner you know host of television for years and years and years producing stuff traveling uh how much of it do you owe to your your participation in 12-step stuff all of it right amazing and now i mean we're facing this thing the world is rocked um, we're, we're both, I mean, I'm at home, you know, with my children, which is a double edged sword, but it's obviously a blessing. Um, how much of that 12 step philosophy do you find incredibly useful in our shared experience right now with, with this Corona business? Uh, I was just on the phone last night, uh, with someone who's been sober a long time, uh, decades and he said that for the first time in his life, he had using urges. Was, like it, Robert, actual, was it Robert Downey Jr.? <laughs> no. Sorry. He had actual urges. Okay. And he was calling me because he wanted to talk about it. And, you know, we did. And I, he had some circumstances in his life. Uh, he had been away, was with the uh, uh, kids, was... Uh, struggled to get home, hadn't been his regular routine, hadn't been to meetings, the pressure of what to do with family and spouse and work and the virus. I mean, just, right. you know, unprecedented. Yeah. And I said, you know, 
for me, when I get away from my routine, you know, and if it was under, I get really messy. If I got away from my routine during this thing, as circumstances had uh, been for him, oh my God, I'm sure I would have using urges. And I said, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. I said, the, the fact of the matter is that you did the right thing, which is the, you know, the, the wisdom of generations of recovering human beings around the world tells us, reach out to another alcoholic, tell your truth right away, right? I mean, you know, he, and I said, you're doing everything you're supposed to do. It's not weird to have an urge. What would be weird is not using the solution or the tool that you know works. I said, you're using the solution or tool that works. And um, he, as I was thinking about that, I realized how lucky I was to have a spiritual program at work. And, and I'm not trying to position myself as someone special. There are millions of people around the world in recovery who will say the same thing. And tens of millions of people around the world, maybe more, who have, have no idea what alcoholism or drug addiction is like, but have a personal belief system and faith system at work in their daily life that allows them to match serenity to this current calamity. Right. What we are what we are in the middle of right now is a once every hundred years calamitous situation. It is a global pandemic. We are entering a global recession, if not depression. Um, this is unprecedented uh, in the last hundred plus years. Um, so the the fact of the matter is that because I'm an alcoholic and because I have been actively in recovery for 28 years, I have a design for living that works for me that allows me to uh, match serenity to calamity, but more importantly, tells me the message that I was in a much worse hole 28 years ago. Right. Hopeless, wanting to die, didn't care if I lived or die, had no, you know, I mean, nothing to live for, in my opinion. I mean, just, I was, a, I mean, as bottomed as bottomed could get. And uh, now, 28 years later, here I am. So if there's one thing my story tells me is that I know how to get out of a bottomless hole. And I've, I've thought about that a lot. Um over the last uh, number of days as it relates to closing my businesses, letting friends of 27 years, some of whom I've worked with for decades, uh, you know, having to, you know, uh, terminate them so they can go get unemployment insurance because we have no more income coming into a lot of our businesses. Um, it's the same thing a lot of other business owners are going through. The, the fact of the matter is, is that without this design for living that, you know, I'm engaged in, without the benefits that I have um, in my life, uh, would I be using? I don't know. Would I be miserable, scared, and uh, acting irresponsibly in ways that might later – put me and other people in a position to be hurt? Absolutely. Right. I know I would. Right. I know I would because I would be reactive to this. The, 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 the lessons that we learn in recovery about being um, 
uh, intentional as opposed to reactive are things that are saving my ass today. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, and I love the idea of serenity in reaction to calamity. Like this is our chance to be who we are supposed to be basically. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And that, 1,000, 1,000%. Do you want to say anything about, uh, the save the restaurants initiative? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, one of the most, one of the most important things, uh, that we, um, that we have done as a group, uh, in terms of the restaurant world is that a bunch of us started a group 10 days ago, 11 days ago, um, called, uh, the independent restaurant coalition, uh, you can go to save restaurants.co uh, and find out more about that. Um, it's a fantastic, fantastic um, uh, organization. And we, we've been trying to uh, deal with policy changes on, um, uh, on Capitol Hill. That's been our primary goal. Um, we've engaged with thousands of people. We've grown our numbers. We've raised money. We've got lobbyists. We've got um, uh, a ton of really great people working really hard to try to save our industry. Because it's it's crazy moment. Uh, the only thing that's keeping catches afloat at the moment is shipping. Like people are, are ordering pastrami and matzo ball soup from all over the country right now, and that's the only reason that I can sort of work from home in a way. Uh, restaurants are in big trouble. Oh, I need to. I need to do that. Tell me what you need. I got you, chef. It's on me. I could use. I could use some cats. Jesus. Well, I I totally totally got you. So Dopey Nation, go to saverestaurants.co. And let me ask you this, chef. I work at Katz's. I've worked at Katz's for almost 12 years. I waited on you and yep. your son a couple of times in there. Yep. Um, By the way, four, I should point out, there are some restaurants uh, downtown mostly where four generations of Zimmerns have eaten. Okay. It's one of the things that I love about my – I just love saying that every time I get an opportunity to. Katz's is one of them. Right on. Four, gen, four generations and – we don't know it, but one of my cousins pointed out to me that while unconfirmed, we believe that a fifth generation of Zimmerns had to eat, have eaten at Katz's because when my grandparents were young and took my father, right, um, and his brother, um, they had to have found out about it from their parents, who were alive at the time. And so while we have no confirmation because of our grandparents are long dead. We reason that at, at Katz's, um, for sure, uh, five generations of Zimmerans have eaten there. How crazy is that? Well, we love that. You know, the, the uh, Katz's, you know, an institution like that is, is just very special. What are the other three? Does Sammy's? Sammy's one of them? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, Numwa Tea Parlor okay. uh, da- down in Chinatown. Yeah. Um, Wohop, even yes. though it's only been open since the sixties, my grandmother, uh, my father, myself and my son have all, uh, eaten there. Sure. Uh, Russ, Russ and daughters. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, I'm blanking the steakhouse underneath the, the Brooklyn Peter Bridge. Lugers. Peter Lugers. Yeah. Um, 
the uh, before it closed the Carnegie Deli. Right. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of very special places that uh, that we've all eaten in. Totally, I love that. Let me ask you this: as a New Yorker, and I and my boss hates that I'm going to say this, Viselka is my favorite chicken soup that my grandma or my dad didn't make. What's what's your favorite chicken soup in the city that doesn't come from a person uh, like a, a family kitchen? Oh my god, um, boy! I'll tell you. I know this is going to sound so bougie. Okay. Uh, the uh, Eli Zabar's place, sure, on the Upper East Side, yes. because their their broth is so deep and rich. Yes. Um, is is a spectacular soup. There used to be uh, when David Lederman opened his first uh, cookie place, uh, David's Cookies, over on like Second Avenue and Seventy Fifth Street or something like that. There was a, a fried chicken place that would did rotisserie chicken, rotisserie duck, and they had quarts of chicken stock up there. And I still maintain that was the best chicken broth ever made on planet Earth, other than mine. Okay, but they're gone. Sadly, let me let me run something by you before you go. Okay, I, I have this vision. All right, I, it came to me while I was smoking weed with a friend years ago. Uh, I worked at Katz's then, and uh, I brought home a black and white cookie. Right, and yep. I cut the icing off the cookie. Right, then I put the black and white icing together. So that one side was white and one side was black, and the cookie was black and white in every bite, chef. I called it the Othello, a two-sided black and white cookie. I have been trying to get off this off the ground for like 10 years. What do you think? Genius. You in? You want to you come in with me on this thing? Genius. Well, let's talk after this pandemic and see if we can get some cookies in the shop. Genius. Let's talk, chef. I'm, I'm, I've been trying to do this my whole life. <laughs> I call it the Othello. It's black and white in every bite. Thank you, chef. You're a genius. You're a beautiful man. Easy. Thank you so much for coming on and spreading a nice message. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. You too. Thanks for doing this. Enjoy don't, your... Don't drink and go to meetings. Don't drink and go to meetings and uh, enjoy your borscht. I saw you made pots and pots and pots of borscht. I did. I did. I did. Before that, it was chicken broth. You know, I'm, I'm laying in for the next three or four weeks here. All right. Well, you're doing a great thing, and thank you again. Thank you. Take it easy. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. So I think that was cool that Chef Andrew Zimmern came on our little stupid show, and, uh, yeah. and I think he told a lot. Now, Ray, let me introduce you, man. Don't just jump in. Got to give you a nice, nice introduction. <laughs> you might know him as... A great singer-songwriter, or you might know him as a weirdo who showers with his clothes on, or you might know him as a pubic hair-munching, toilet seat-licking, <laughs> crazy person, but how, or you might know him as the new host of the dopey Zoom Room meetings, but either way, it's Ray, my friend and yours. Welcome back, Ray. Dave. I'm not the host of the Dopey Zoom Room. Ben's the host. Ben and Colleen are the hosts. You know, we got to give Ben a shout out. I think Ben just celebrated three years. He did today, yeah. So what do we say? We say congratulations, Ben. Congratulations, Ben, yeah. And um, and then also, there's remember that dude from West Virginia, Matt Aaron? Mm-hmm. He celebrated a thousand days. I saw that, yeah, that's great. 
Remember when we drove to that weird hotel in that ill-smelling town in West Virginia? <laughs> yeah, that town. Sm- like, can you imagine living in that town? Like, it always smells like that. I mean, that's just an ill-smelling town. <laughs> <laughs> it was like sulfur or garbage, or I think it was like a weird paper mill town. It's paper just mill, yeah, terrible. And we sat in the parking lot recording the show, like the seedy motel parking lot. <laughs> I know it was like the ultimate place to get drugs, and we were recording <laughs> Dopey. So, so congratulations to Matt. Um, and how cool was it that Chef Andrew came on the show? Yeah, I I didn't know who you, you said a chef is coming on, and then I when when I heard it, I looked him up. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. I've watched that show. The interesting thing to me was that I've wanted to get me and Chris used to want to get Chef Andrew on the show. Uh, I, like oh, yeah? I said in the interview, I used to wait on him at Katz's, and Chris one day randomly was at a restaurant in Boston where he was shooting, and Chris was in an episode of uh, Bizarre Foods. Um, oh. And he looked – Chris looks like Bruce Jenner. He's got this like feathered hair going on and this big, <laughs> very white smile. Um, so, yeah. So I think, and you know, so then the crazy thing is Ray that I he has like a million Instagram followers, and I just wrote him a message, and he said he wanted to come on. Oh, I thought it was because of Katz's. Oh wow! No, it's because of the incredible cloud of dopey, and he was like, "I heard that you have a co-host who sometimes eats pubic hair." <laughs> no, he I don't eat pubic hair. Stop saying that. Never, never say never, Ray. <laughs> No, I, I dig that show. I've, I've watched that a bunch of times. Um, you know, Sam sent me this article. Can I read it to you? Yeah. He says, it says, okay, I think you know about this. An influencer who licked a toilet seat said he's in the hospital with the coronavirus. <laughs> An influencer who goes by the name Lars says he's in the hospital after contracting the coronavirus. He took part in the bizarre coronavirus challenge of licking a toilet seat just a few days earlier. He tweeted, I tested positive for coronavirus from his now deactivated Twitter account. The social media influencer Lars told his followers he was in a hospital uh, after catching the coronavirus from licking the toilet seat, right? In a public Ugh. bathroom. What do you say? Disgusting. Terrible. Poor Lars. <laughs> we wish Lars a, a speedy recovery. How are you doing? What's going on? What's 14th Street like? Talk to us, Ray. It's weird. You know, there's there's nobody downstairs. There's no one on the street. It's like uh, uh, the movie On the Beach. You go downstairs and there's nobody here in the middle of New York City. And I'm just up here recording my... Uh, version of welcome back cotter it sounds good ray ray's ray's crazy um uh cult like his other cult the flow chan cult always does these very cool compilations and this time they're doing a compilation of covers of tv theme songs and ray is doing the great uh welcome back cotter by john sebastian and dave is doing well it's undecided now yeah, I'm either going to do One Day at a Time or uh, The Dukes of Hazard. And, uh, Ray, did you watch Welcome Back, Cotter? Well, I've seen it. We didn't get that station. When I was growing up, we only got CBS. So we only had one TV station. But I've seen it. That's it amazing. On, it was on ABC, I think. With Gabe Kaplan. Super Jew Gabe Kaplan. Yeah, I thought he was very sexy. Oh, yeah. Very hairy chest. 
probably lots of uh, his pubic hair hit many a toilet seat <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> um, and then I was telling Ray, Ray was telling me that he picked Welcome Back, Cotter, and I was telling Ray this interesting story that happened to me years and years ago. Uh, it was the last time I went to treatment in Los Angeles, and uh, I was kicking methadone, and I went to um, a detox. It was a 28-day program to get off of methadone. To, I, was, I think I had gone from 150 milligrams down to 30, and I checked in, and they were going to put me on, I think, buprenorphine. It was like still buprenorphine was a little bit of an experimental drug. And I was mm-hmm. like crazy. My mom had just gotten diagnosed with leukemia, and I was crazed. And I felt like very just unsettled, unhinged, speedy from the buprenorphine. And uh, that was the first time that a counselor identified me as, uh, you know, I will die. You know, like counselors always tell drug addicts they will die. My counselor told me I will die. And it turned out that that counselor was the bass player from John Sebastian's group and had actually played bass on the Welcome Back Cotter. Wow, the Loving Spoonful. Wow. I don't think it was the Loving Spoonful. I think it was his solo band. Like solo. Okay. Well, that's, you know, that counselor told that chef guy when he was very young um, that he was going to die. Jails, prison, or death. And you never went to treatment. No, you you know, I've... You know, last in February, I told some friends of mine, I'll go to rehab when this is over, because that's just a buzzword that will stop like people from worrying about you. But a lot of this stuff on dopey, like the methadone, the subs, it's like even though I took heroin and crystal, like all this, the rehab and the subs and the methadone, it's all over my head. And I'm, I'm learning a bit about it, but I don't understand methadone at all. Like, why do they give people methadone if you get high off of methadone and then you can sell it? And when you, we have a voicemail from, I forgot his name, but um, your friend from high school. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, uh, well, methadone, basically, it was created by Hitler and the Nazis to uh in order to to have synthetic painkillers I think I don't know I that's supposedly the story but yeah why don't we just play that now I I was curious as to what was going on in the methadone clinic or methadone clinic and we have my friend Jesse who I went to high school with who works in one and we wanted to see what was going on maybe we should just play that now yeah are you down with that Ray yeah I think that's good all right So here's Jesse and me. Hold on. All right. I know you guys are wondering what the fuck is going on down at the methadone clinic. So we have an insider, my friend Jesse from high school and from Dopey. You, you, he works at a methadone clinic. Do you run the clinic, Jesse? (laughs) I don't. No, I don't exactly run things. I'm I'm just a counselor. You're just a worker Uh, among workers down at the methadone clinic. Just a worker bee at the methadone clinic. You know, fighting a good fight. What the fuck is going on down there? Well, it was, um, you know, complete fucking mayhem, but it's things have things have chilled out now. I mean, basically, like when the shit hit the fan, the order came in like we got to get everybody take home medication because we can't have, you know, we serve like I think we have like thirteen hundred something clients. So we, you know, we can't have everybody coming in and out of the building every day. Um, so it became a process of like pouring over everybody's chart and seeing like how many bottles we can give somebody 
and hope that they don't kill themselves with it. <laughs> Pretty much. So when did the take home um, start flowing? I remember, I mean, I as a methadone addict, or a, see, they like to be called methadone addicts or methadone patients. Uh, we always we always say patients. Um, I, I some know. people say clients. I say patients. Um, I was definitely an inpatient methadone addict. And what about what about methadone, methadone? Like the hardcore people say methadone. Yeah, the old school. Yeah. I, I know I work with some counselors that go like way back and they say methadone. And I, I don't know what the deal is with that. I think it might go back because some of it goes back to there's like brand names like methadose is a brand yeah. of, of methadone. Um, like there's like, you know, the red syrupy stuff, which yeah. is so Friggin' gross, and then there's like we have the clear stuff that they mix in with the green dye. Green um, methadone is that for St. Patrick's Day? Ours is green all the time, so we're just pretty much it's St. Patrick's Day year round. I used to do. So, I used to get the cherry and the orange. Um, so they give you a little orange drink, yeah, for afterwards, right? No, I had the orange methadone. Oh, really? And I oh, just okay. started I've saying methadone. I never, I never tasted or. I start you know. saying methadone to be cool, Jesse. Like mm-hmm. I feel, I feel old school, and I say methadone. <laughs> <laughs> methadone. Yeah, I've only tasted. I've only used the uh, the red stuff and like the tablets, you know, from back in the like the biscuits. But I've never like the clear stuff we have. The clients tell me it tastes disgusting, but I've never, uh, I've never taken any of that, and they don't exactly let me sample. Like, let me get a taste of, of the methadone, please. The cherry. I feel like I need to get inside my client's heads. <laughs> right, it's a re- recipe for disaster. Yeah, um, just hit me with twenty milligrams, and you know, at this point, that would probably fucking knock me on my ass. Oh, dude, you'd get fucking rocked. Just let me get yeah. 20, 20 milligrams on the upside. <laughs> Um, I fucking just want to go to the methadone clinic just to hear the accents. Are they like, is the accent still in effect over there? Well, there's a lot. I mean, this is Connecticut. So there's, you know, there's the accents are a little different. Uh, The Connecticut accent is a little weird. It's kind of like a little, it's kind of like this bastardized, like halfway between New York and Boston kind of thing that happens. Um, but you get, you definitely get like the gravelly, uh, you know, the heavy gravelly, especially with the, the benzo, um, yeah. clients. You That's know? how you get the perfect methadone voice is you take either an accent from New York or Boston, the Bronx, Staten Island, Brooklyn, you mm-hmm. mix it with hopelessness. You add a little <laughs> bit of benzodiazepam and you Hey Brenda, I don't want to piss today. Let me get some takeovers for tomorrow. I can't give you urine today. I can't. I can't go. I got to get to work. I just. I can't pee in front of you. I, I, I get. I get shy. Do they say they get shy? Well, we don't do. Uh, we don't observe urines. Thank goodness. So yes, that's to, a blessing. Don't have to work. Yeah, because can you? I can't even imagine what that job would. I mean, we would need like a full because we have so many people. We would need like a full time urine observer, which would pretty much be the worst job. I think you could have so how many how many people do you think are passing fake urine uh, you know we i know that there's some but it comes out they always end up getting caught because the temperature ends up off um if they start building up bottles and something's going on we you know a lot of times we'll get them with the recall system or um 
you know, the shit usually, you know, people get sloppy, you know, I mean, if someone's doing a good enough job to, to fake it all the way, you know, long term, then my hat's off to them, you know. I mean, my whole take is like if someone's got it that together to do it that well, then they're st- then they actually maybe they are stable enough to handle the bottle. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. That's funny. You know, at the um, end at the end of my methadone career, I was I was using dope almost every day, but they always tested on Friday. So I think hmm. I, I would stop using on Wednesday, and I would hmm. piss clean on Friday, and it worked. It, it wow, always worked. I'm surprised, dude. You know. Because yeah, that's that's not a lot of time, but yeah, you must be a, a quick quick metabolizer. I don't know. It was yeah. dialed in though. So so at what yeah. point did they decide for this coronavirus that they should give more take homes? Like how fast did it happen? How excited were the were the patients? Well, I think it was. It came down basically from the state state issues, like because we're basically only allowed to give people take home medications based on like their time in treatment, and we're also only allowed to give them um, two weeks worth unless we get an exemption from the state, which allows us to give them more. Because basically, it's state by state, I think, and there's some federal regs too. But so the state came down and said, like, you can give anybody who's qualified and capable that your doctor is willing to sign off on, you can give them up to 27 bottles. Okay. Um, and it doesn't matter how long they've been in treatment. We're waiving that requirement. Wow. Um, so anybody who was getting like their two weeks worth of take home bottles immediately went to 27 to right. a whole month's worth of bottles. Um, and we even had a couple already that were getting like a month's worth of, we're getting four weeks worth of bottles. Um, and then pretty much like pretty much everyone's getting some. There are some people that are just like not stable enough to even get like a week's worth. They're getting like every other day. So there are people um, that have to come every other day. You're not just like, fuck it. We don't want you here. You yeah, get- no, there's still and we yeah, there's still a, a good amount of people that are coming like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You know, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, however, we've figured it out. But basically the idea is to just lower the traffic level, you know, um, and so people aren't bumping into each other in the clinic. And there's no line, obviously. No, there's been pretty much no line. The only time it's at the peak hours, sometimes it still builds up a little. And, you know, we, we were keeping, it's kind of sucks because we have to, we can only have certain amount of people in the building. So people are now like kind of waiting outside and they have to stand six feet apart. And, you know, there's like these lines we of tape we put on the floor. So it feels right. like prison now. And, right. <laughs> um, so that's all kind of fucked up, but it seems to have like this, we're kind of like the storm has subsided a little bit as far as like handling that initial wave. Now I think it's like kind of waiting for like the next fallout when we start finding out who's sick, you know, because Connecticut's like with most things, it's, you know, generally like a month behind New York probably. So I have a feeling we're kind of going to get hit. Right. Um, it's in the middle. But I don't, yeah, it's, it's on its way up 95. I mean, I would assume, right. you know, totally. So, like, yeah, and, I, you know, it's definitely like, um, you know, going in every day, I'm starting to freak out. I still have to run. We're still running an ILP, so I'm doing groups. 
um, which I don't like, but it's part of my job, so I got to do it. And if court still says people have to do their IOP, then you know I don't want them to go to jail. So, what's the mood like in general? I think it's pretty anxious. I think people are just kind of a little bit freaked out, you know. Um, at least the staff. I think the staff is the close. Some of the clients are. Some of the clients, it's like you. I mean, it's almost like you've never even heard of it. You know, you have some of these people that just kind of live. Come, I so love like, that. That's that classic <laughs> like methadone time machine. Like what? <laughs> coronavirus? No. Wait, Corona? What? Yeah. What's going on? I don't drink Corona. Sick? I drink cold forty-five. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it really is like it's it's real. There's some that just you think they they may they might actually live under a rock. So I love that. That the methadone time machine. It's like a real yeah. fucking thing. Yeah, no, definitely. And how many Absolutely. how many of the young the new patients that are getting their first take homes prematurely do you think are trading for pills or dope or selling or like how much like uh like underhanded. I wonder, you know, I don't know how much, I don't know what the dope scene is like right now. Like, I don't know they, you know, we've shut down the borders more, right? You know, there's no travel being allowed between Canada and Mexico, you know, those borders. I wonder if the dope supply is going to start to get thin. Um, my take is we probably flooded the market with bottles so that we probably drove the price way down. No, totally. Because <laughs> everybody's got them. So. And nobody needs them. I mean, I know them. already, like, clients have told me, because the place where I work is, is really good. You, you know, you show up to do an intake, and they usually dose you that day. Like, they get people in quick, um, which is huge. Because someone shows up sick and you tell them, like, come back in a week for your physical, like, you don't know what's going to happen, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. They could be dead in a week or they could have gotten a check and be off and running again or whatever, you know? But um, so, like, I've heard from clients that years ago when it was harder to get on a program and there was just less less slots available, that bottles would fetch a lot more, you know, like a dollar a milligram. But now I think you're lucky to get 20 bucks for your... 90 milligram bottle and that shit would that would drop you like a like a oh that would kill me yeah i know it's crazy but it's yeah it's wild when you realize the tolerance that that you build up when you're using like you know years ago that would have just made me normal yeah uh, yeah totally i think it's i think now yeah yeah i think it's amazing um I, i still i still find it amazing that you figured out where I went to high school from listening to the killer story, reached out to the show, and we like became friends from this thing. I think it's the coolest. It really thing. is to me one of the craziest uh, coincidences. You know, it was just so friggin' random. Um, and the fact that I started listening was like I just happened to see that or they did an article on in that um, that online method, the fix. Yeah, I don't even know if that's still around. It is. But, um, yeah. I used to like just look through it randomly to find topics for group. And there was an article about you guys interviewing like the guy from house of pain. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I remember that guy. Let me listen <laughs> to this. And I probably listened to like 20 episodes before I put two and two together. Um, it's so and funny. It clicked. So funny. <laughs> um, I do appreciate, uh, the news from the methadone front. Yeah. I mean, listen, people were, people are getting their methadone, uh, at least where I'm at, we're we're making sure everyone's taken care of. We're not closing. I've had to like, I've definitely had to like 
you know, assuage a lot of fears with clients. Like we're not closing no matter what happens. We will take care of you. You know, like, um, that's what we say at Katz's deli. We're not going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) You can get your pastrami no matter what. Um, yeah, I I hear you. Cause it's, I mean, I can imagine it's a very real fear, fear. Like, um, I'm, I, I'll never forget, like, and I, I was reminded of it this week because years ago, I, when I first started, I had a client who'd been, like, binge-watching um, The Walking Dead, and, like, she started freaking out, and she was like, what if something like that happens, and I'm, I need methadone, and, like, this leaves me, like, vulnerable, and I'm like, well, you know, I mean, we're not going to have a zombie apocalypse, but like, I can understand like the real fear, you know, I are you mean, kidding? Like, Cause then you're yeah. just sick and you're fucked. Yeah. I mean, like you were talking about, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, what you went through on nine 11. I can remember trying to cop drugs downtown right after nine 11. Um, yeah, it's and, like that. Uh, I, I imagine it's like that now, but I also yeah. imagine a lot of people are in some sort of drug addled time machine brain. Like, I think that's probably even just potheads like are just like, I'm getting my weed. You know, I don't give a fuck. You know, I can imagine them like calling up their dealers to me and like going out, ignoring the, the quarantine just, you know, because getting drugs is more important than being safe. Because like, why would you be getting yeah, drugs? Totally. If you care, Plus, I feel like if you're running with a dope habit, you, you know, you have that weird immunity to getting sick. Right. When you're using like you don't get sick. Like. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's why people are writing about that on the Dopey Nation uh, Facebook group. Is uh, is being uh, addicted to heroin or using going to keep you from getting uh, COVID? And I wouldn't be it surprised might. if it did. It might. There's something there because I never got sick. Like when I was, you know, I mean, as soon as I got clean, I would start catching colds and totally crap that normal people go through. I mean, maybe you get sick and you just don't notice it. No, because you're high. You feel great. Yeah. And then if you're not high, you're you're just the dope sick kind of trumps any other ailment you might have going on. So. Well, my 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 covid symptoms were so similar to like post acute withdrawal kind of right after the first round of oh. like crazy, like shitting your pants and stuff. The I next thing. That. It was it was I very like that. that. I've ha- I've been there with like a flu. And yeah. It, like I don't know, man. It triggers like of weird course. feelings for me. It comes all yeah. it comes right back immediately. Me too. Yeah. Uh, Jesse, it's a pleasure. I will check in again soon. Yeah, please do, man. And uh, yeah, uh, be well and uh, my best to everybody. Right on. All right, Jess. Thanks, man. All right. Talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Let's thank Jesse. And what do you make of that? What do you make of? Uh, coronavirus in methadonia that was really interesting i mean i've been wondering you and i've been wondering about that the listeners have been wondering like what are heroin addicts doing what are methadone people doing and and uh jesse had like all the inside info on what's happening in methadone world which is like it's foreign to me you know about it i don't yeah it's a it's really crazy my favorite thing he mentioned is like for the methadone patients who really don't even know that it's happening. I'm sure there's a ton of them. It's yeah. like, and to me, like that's, you, that's like, like the highest on, comedy, right? You on nine 11, that you told that story. I knew nine 11 was happening though, but I bet no. you people who showed up there didn't. Um, yeah. but let's, I want to know about you, Ray. I mean, like before all this shit happened, your recovery was teetering. You know what I mean? You were like just crawling back 
to a nice, comfortable place, and now yeah. this the world like has ended. Has it impacted this, your uh, your sobriety at all? No, I'm just sitting in my apartment. I'm going to these dopey Zoom meetings, and um, I, I just I, I don't know. My world has become very small. Uh, I've been like uh, jerking off like for extended periods of time, nice. watching YouTube and. I don't know, going to dopey meetings and recording this song. Ray, are you masturbating to mountain climbing videos then? Oh, you know, I love watching uh, uh, videos of people climbing really hard mountains like K2 or the Matterhorn. I just love to see what's up there and what's involved in like that last, you know, 30 minutes of that and what the top of it's like, Everest, K2, like Annapurna. Oh, Annapurna is the most dangerous mountain. Um, or K2, but just it's wild and there's there's such high quality and I've, I found out my nephew and I watch the same videos But I don't know. No, I'm not masturbating to those. I'm just watching them. So you're you're masturbating to other YouTube videos enjoying <laughs> no, no, well, you know YouTube keeps recommending all these videos of wrestlers getting weighed in before the wrestling match so <laughs> I have watched those Right, hairy wrestlers, perhaps with lots of like pubic you know, hair. like wrestlers in singlets before like a a wrestling match getting weighed in. Singlets, that's a good word. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, I got I got unemployment, and there's extra money. I mean, I was lucky that I happened to be working at like a real job, like a W two job, just before this happened, and because of COVID, unemployment's giving you extra money. So I'm like kind of okay with. That's just kind of like waiting, you know, that at, at my job, you know, every year I've been doing this job for a long time and it's like in an office, but we go in and like a construction team and they found out how much the office workers found out how much we made. And there's this like hostility about like, why do these like blue guys make more than we do? So every year they're like, we're not going to have you back. And then we're like, cool, just do it yourself. And then they call us and, you know. You get the sawzall and the table saw, you know, and the compressor. I want to see you build this office, people. So but, they they resent you, but you guys are skilled workers. You're talent. You're you're artisans and craftsmen. Yeah, and like they can't do. They can't you know build stuff. We have like a, a wood shop, a carpentry shop, and you know I don't know. <laughs> and what are these dopey Zoom rooms like? Um, they're well. Each day is different. Some days they're more serious. Some days they're um very today was like very lighthearted and kind of just a conversation and uh, uh ben sets up a, um like a topic for the day um and then that usually devolves devolves by the end of the meeting and people are just chatting it was very fun and people from all over the world people from canada england uh australia you and andrew have discouraged me from joining the dopey zoom meeting you both have said that i will ruin the dopey zoom meeting if i attend you might and can you expound on this for me please ray i don't know maybe not you just come you should like check one out i went to a uh 12-step meeting this morning at six on in zoom. the morning on on it wasn't on zoom it was like easy talk or something but yeah. but i'm sure it was the same thing yeah it, and it was like it was a little disconcerting and weird because you see all these people and I guess they see you, but you don't yep. feel them see you. Do you know what I mean? You feel like you're watching something more than well, you're if in you it. wave, they will wave back. 
You know, I was waving the whole time and nobody fucking waved back. <laughs> Maybe they couldn't see you. Motherfuckers. Like, why are they so much better than me that they're not going to fight? I could go to the dopey Zoom meeting and everybody would love me. Instead, I go to this stupid meeting. Nobody fucking acknowledges that I exist. It's like, what the fuck? You know, I wore the dopey hoodie to this meeting this morning, too. Promote. Promo. <laughs> there, somebody wrote, why, why are you wearing this stupid hoodie? Um, I've been wearing my dopey hoodie for like five days in a row. The sleeves are so grimy and disgusting that I finally took it off today. Yeah, I've been wearing the same shirt. Although I'm, I started shave like I've, I shaved my, I have a beard, but I shaved my neck and I wasn't shaving. It was making me feel kind of gross. So like yeah. I haven't shaved in a week. Yeah, I shaved the beard and now the beard is back and I feel much more like myself. Yeah. Um, in other news, guess who friend requested me today? Uh, I don't know. John Takeif. Really? He's back. My my relationship with, <laughs> I told you. I told you he'd be back. My relationship with John is fixed. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. I'm very very relieved. And um in other news, other dopey news, there is a woman who is a huge fan of the show who goes by the nickname of Ladybug, and it is her birthday this week. So, Ray, why don't you yeah. wish Ladybug a happy birthday? Happy birthday, Ladybug. Happy birthday. And her, her boyfriend, this dude called David, uh, hit me up to, I don't know, he wanted me to post on Instagram, but I wasn't going to waste my Instagram post. So instead, <laughs> I used an Instagram story, and uh, and I said I'd say it on the show. So happy birthday yeah. to Ladybug. And um, he has a voicemail. You want to hear his voicemail? It's about masturbating. Yeah. I thought yeah. you could get into it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Hold on. Hey, Dave. This is David sending a message in from Canada. I hope your quarantine's going well. I know mine is. I... Uh I've been a long-time listener of the show. Really uh, appreciate you keeping me company, especially in my early recovery. <clears throat> um, I thought I would uh, take this. I got a lot of time on my hands right now, so I thought I would send in a dopey story of my own. Um, I was a heroin addict for <clears throat> probably uh, almost 10 years now, um, and I've been in recovery almost a year. Um, and I remember one time I'd been to the local detox here in Calgary in Alberta, Canada, uh, dozens and dozens of times. I remember um, one of the very first times I ever went there. I um, anybody who does heroin kind of knows that the whole time you're shooting dope, uh, you you can get. I could get hard, but I couldn't come at all. So I didn't come for probably three years. And the first time I went to go do uh, detox, I I get in. They get me in the bed in the observation deck. And uh, my uh, my libido comes back with this huge in this huge fucking way. And anybody who knows this part of uh, heroin withdrawal knows that um, uh, you can I, if you come, it makes you feel better for maybe ten seconds, right? So I remember sitting, laying in the bed, and I'm hating life and I'm in physical, emotional, and spiritual hell. And I start fucking jerking off, and I <clears throat> I come in about five seconds. And I feel good for just one, you know, a brief moment of respite. And uh, before uh, the hell comes crashing back in and I'm back in the warehouse. So what do I do? I jerk off again. I come in 10 seconds, right? Um, I think from my, you know, not being able to for so long and, and, and uh, trying to get any sort of endorphin dump that I can, 
just super easy. I don't want to uh, be facetious in the actual number of times, but in an hour, I feel like I came probably 35 times. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it again. And then all of a sudden, I'm, my, my bed in the observation room for the detox is against this glass panel where the nurses can come and check on you. And all of a sudden, I hear like a clink, clink, clink. And I look up, and it's the hot detox nurse. And she's saying, sir, you have to stop doing that. Like, she's been watching this for a while. And she's like, he's got to run out of steam at some point. Uh, until she eventually she had to come over and say something to me about it. <clears throat> and I remember uh, stopping, looking up, um, and just saying, I don't, I don't feel well. And um, eventually I had to stop. Um, it definitely wasn't the last time I saw that particular nurse uh, at that detox. I went to that detox dozens more times. And every time we, we kind of met up, we uh, kind of locked eyes. <laughs> how you doing kind of deal um i've since been back there to speak since i've been in recovery for my local 12-step group and every time i go there i see her and she's remember the first time she saw me she's like holy fuck it's you and i was like that's right i'm gonna go home and jerk off by myself this time anyways um again uh Thank you again so much for the podcast, for all the work you do. Really appreciate you. Uh, Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. That might that that just might be the the best Canadian fucking voicemail ever. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking a lot of masturbation, and I like that the I like the hot detox nurse, and I like the whole thing. I think it's great. It's a it's great. Yeah. Um. So Ray. You know, you live alone for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel lonely during this whole coronavirus thing? Yeah, lonely is not the right word. I don't know. I feel isolated. I I don't feel lonely because I'm talking to a lot of people, but I feel very isolated. It feels, you know, it's, it's weird. It's weird for everybody in the world. You know, I'm spending way too much time with my family. I know it's making it's making me <laughs> fucking crazy because it's it's like the days I don't get to watch enough TV. I haven't masturbated in God. I mean, like I'm just like fantasizing about that guy's story. I I, I can't even. It's like thirty five times. I, I don't even know what the fuck has happened to my life. Um, but I guess like there's a value in what I'm doing, right? Yeah. I remember that on heroin, uh, it was kind of great that you could fuck and fuck and fuck and never come. That gave away one of my relapses to Linda. Um, oh, really? Because, she, you know, like, <laughs> you know, she she's was, like, when are you going to come? She's like, this isn't like you. Um, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Ray, I sent you an email. Did you get that email? Yes. You want to read it? Let me go to my computer. It's from it's from a great dopey listener and the first dopey scholarship winner, Josh, and uh, he wrote it from, he had just moved uh, sober houses to a a house from Transcend Recovery in Venice Beach, California. And um, I love Josh, and I thought it was a, you know, pretty uh, hardcore email, and I I thought it would be nice if you read it. You know what's funny is, I was on the Dopey podcast, Dopey Zoom room, and at the end, everybody's like, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, I'm doing the show, and they were kind of surprised. It's like so last minute. Okay. Well, what did they? What did they say about that? That's funny. What did they say? They were like, "That's 
you do the show you, you do the show on Friday night like no, no wonder it comes on so late <laughs> well I mean the deal is it's like if I ha- I mean imagine I had 20 shows pre-recorded and there was yeah. no coronavirus and nothing yeah. was up to the minute this is what makes the Dobie podcast so exciting fly by the seat of your pants fun yeah well well, we were doing it early Friday morning, and then now we're doing it Friday night. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would much rather have an episode done on Tuesday and not sweat it, but it's just not... I mean, I have these fucking children, you know? They've taken yeah. over. And, and, and I mean, like, I had way more time to myself when I was working, frankly. So you have but, time but, on the train also. But I do love not working, I have to say. Anyway, yeah, read the email, please, Ray. Okay. Uh, we are all moving to the Venice house today, which should be cool. I'm at 48 days sober today. I am going a little insane, not having anything to do. So the change of location is more than welcome. Corona has begun to affect the meetings somewhat. Any meetings at schools or community centers. Oh yeah. Stop for a second. This, I got this email like 10 days ago and I was going to read it on the show last week, but I forgot, but I thought it was worth reading now. So, okay. Uh, they've been shut down. Uh, it's the house and us residents will be allowed more freedoms, which both pros and cons. The pros are that I may have, I may find more activities to distract myself, and the cons being the possibilities of exposure to risky options may increase. I am still pretty confident in my ability to maintain sobriety while in this environment, especially being on naltrexone, the opioid blocker. But to be honest, I've been thinking about weed a lot in the last couple of days. Oh, how I miss Mary. The thought of drinking a beer has been lurking in the back of my my mind, too. I'm not sure if the closing of this house is going to continue to disrupt the plans for my intensive outpatient therapy I was told I would be doing, because it hasn't been mentioned since I arrived. Uh, This is hard for me to read. Time will tell. Up until the last two days, I had no problem finding rides to meetings from other residents, but the resident uh, with the most... I hang out with the most isn't moving to the new house, so that will limit my options probably. He was taking me to meetings daily as well as with him to volunteer for Meals on Wheels and music therapy at an old folks home, which were nice ways to fill my time. It's the downtime that gets me. My sponsor has started going through the big book with me, which I am not, which I am not into, but I'm trying to keep an open mind. I see how it helps the sponsor as much as it it is supposed to help me, so I've been staying engaged. I call him almost every day and text him a gratitude list nightly. I know it's not recommended to look for a relationship in early recovery, nor do I know if enough time has passed since Ashley's passing, but I feel like a relationship or even a casual one would be helpful. I heard from another Mountainside, a resident at Mountains, that Mountainside has closed up not allowing any new residents or visitors at this time due to Corona. The days are moving slow again. Maybe it's just a mid-month hump like last month. We'll see how the move goes. My teeth are still an issue, but are holding on. It isn't looking like I will be able to get them fixed while here in California. So I'm just hoping I can make it until I get back to Wisconsin, I guess. I hope you don't mind the email. It's more just to give me something to do for a bit. I had planned to tell you about the night filled with cocaine, heroin, and meth-induced sex led, led to a rupture of my of the pineal vein last year <laughs> and required <laughs> required emergency surgery for about nine months of research, rehab. 
It was the only surgery of the kind performed by the urologist, I was told, after the fact. Fortunately for, fortunately for me, everything healed up with no lasting effects. Ashley was a trooper through the whole insane experience as she was forced to... Uh, as she was throughout our time together. I can't imagine having to go through it with anyone else. It was just months following the very tough decision to have an abortion that we were forced to make her supposedly 99% effective IUD failed. The chances of complications due to mostly the large amount of benzodiazepines Ashley Benzodiazepines. Taking, yeah. uh, benzos. Ashley was taking... Uh, this might uh, be the worst rat email in the history of dope. <laughs> I'm having trouble reading. Uh, he didn't handwrite the, the email. It's typed. What's wrong with you? It's. it's <laughs> I had to make the types bigger, not to mention the meth and the heroin. I supported her decision as she would later support my recovery, which included a couple months of self <laughs> no self-administered penile injections to kickstart this back into working order. It was a rough year that led up to her death. Both of our lives were fairly consistent craziness looking back, yet we have, we never even had a hiccup in our level of devotion or happiness together. Time for me to stop dwelling for today, I think. I'll talk to you soon, Dave, and no matter how things end up playing out, I'm so cautiously optimistic. I want you to know I'm incredibly grateful for everything you've done for me. If nothing else, it has helped me begin to heal after the tragedy. Whoa, I had no idea about that part of it. About which part? The ruptured penile gland? Yes. Or the, oh or, or the weekly injections? Like that, too. I didn't even know that was possible. Well, Ray, you've seen it all. And, and, and luckily, you're not licking toilet seats or eating I'm, any pubic hair this week. I'm not taking any meth and heroin and whatever the other th thing was. And thank God your, your penile glands are, are, are performing perfectly. Right. I don't want to fuck up my penis. All right. Well, I'm going to say good night and thank you okay. again for a stellar appearance on the Dopey Show. Okay. Good night, Dave. Do you want to, say, any do you want to say anything to the audience before you leave? Stay strong, Dopey Nation. I'm going to squeeze a, a quick appearance from my dad in before it's over. Okay. All right, I, I'll talk to you later. I like it when he reads the reviews, but I bet you he reads the reviews as badly as you read the email. That was hard. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. It's always <laughs> okay, a pleasure. Bye. bye. So because we're supposed to be concerned about our elderly relatives, I need to check in with my uh, impaired father uh, alone in Manhattan. How are you doing, Dad? I'm fine. I'm terrific. I'm great. What are you doing? What are you doing to keep your mental faculties in check? Uh, I have a whole list of things that I have to check off and do every day. I have a very important schedule that I have to keep every day. So this is what you would advise to to people who are alone in their apartments, getting older, their brains failing them a little bit. Hey, you, know, you you've been accused of, of of taking making fun of me too often. You know. You know, that uh, maybe there's some truth to this. Well, let's hear the checklist. Oh, the checklist is books, to read a book. What are you TV. reading? What are you reading? Oh, I'm reading a book by a guy named Foner about the Reconstruction after the Civil War, um, which I just started. Um, I couldn't finish Rachel Maddow's book because I found it not so great. Uh, oh, and I also bought the book called uh, The Plague by Albert Camus, which, ah. of course, 
is pretty appropriate, but I didn't even look at that. This reconstruction, is it very boring? Or are you interested? Uh, I just started it. It's, it's, it's interesting. That's part of American history that, that I don't know much about and not too many people know much about it. But probably the reason for current racism because of how, uh, how America uh, existed after the Civil War and, uh, and it became a disaster right after, too. In any case, so that's books, TV. I got this jigsaw puzzle that I'm doing, a thousand pieces that I hope I live long enough to finish it. And then I did cleaning today, cleaned the house, uh, exercise. I did 25 push-ups and three reps of picking up a little bit of weight. And I walked. And I did videos with you and, and uh, the other family, Lori. And I spoke with my friend Pamela and I... Uh, that's about it. <laughs> so you're so you're saying you're you're staying busy, you're staying active, you feel vital, you feel like your brain is still functioning, you feel okay. Yeah, I feel good. I feel good. Uh, it's still a disaster in New York City. I, the Dopey Nation should know that uh, things are not easy. Uh, streets are empty, and it's uh, we got to get through this. And I hope I hope we all get through this and stay healthy out there. All right, what do you want me to do? I want you to uh, read a review. Read the read the the two the last two star review. <laughs> the one that says "Dopey spark my heroin addiction." Yes, that's terrible. I'll just read um, it. All right, Dopey was something that used used to really help me. It saddens me how preachy the podcast has become. It's not like it used to be. Some episodes are still awesome, but others make me feel like I'm in a meeting, which makes me want to vomit. Please stop, Dave, for the OG. What does that mean? OG dopey fan. What does OG mean? What do you think it means? Old. I don't know. Old something. Well, what would you you guess OG meant? I have no clue. It's original. Uh, Original gangster is the idea. uh, But this guy, this guy, his name is Connor Walsh. I mean, listen, Connor Walsh might not realize that Chris and Todd overdosed and died on drugs. You know, maybe he doesn't realize that that would have an effect on me and an effect on the show, that maybe the show can't be the same because one of the people who started the show is dead. So it would have to kind of be different, Connor, you fucking idiot. What kind of fucking idiot is that? Calm down. No, seriously. I mean, can you imagine something as stupid as that? I'm sure Connor's got a fucking needle in his arm in Great Barrington right now. Fucking Connor Walsh, 120. I think you get too angry. I mean, that's another thing. You can't be so angry with it. I'm not. I'm doing shtick over here, Dad. What do you think about that review? I think it's a stupid review. I think the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. All right, about. take it easy, Dad. Come on, relax. Everything's okay. You want to read a nice review before you get off the show? Uh, do, you, do you have a nice review? I don't know. Can you find one? <laughs> I don't know. Which one? Uh, fellow dopehead or? Sure. Uh, oh, fellow dopest. This is five stars. Nice. Um, okay. I have been listening to Dopey for well over a year now. I started off 
with the first episode that was available to listen to because they were removed, right? And slowly have been working my way up to the most recent. It's crazy and totally awesome to hear the changes throughout the progression in this podcast. I was trying to find a podcast to listen to in my downtime, driving in or while at work, and I wanted to listen to something recovery sobriety related. But it seemed that all recovery podcasts were pretty much the same until I stumbled across Dopey. And I, too, am afflicted. I love that Dopey is a prime example of how we have to walk through the shame and pain in order to get to the other side. There were a couple of times in the earlier episodes that I had to pause the podcast due to it being a little triggering for me. But I obviously wasn't spiritually fit at the time. Dopey is an amazing podcast that truly does help me. So grateful Dave and Chris started doing this that David has continued on and continued to stay sober and so grateful I found this podcast. Very, very, very nice. Dad, are you feeling particularly spiritually fit? Look, spiritually fit, I think maybe overrated. I don't don't know what that really means except to try to live one's life as best you can and not do harm to others. I think maybe that's what spiritually fit means to me. No, that sounds right. And and as the father of a uh, IV drug addict, um, what do you recommend to parents out there? Well, persevere, be strong, and be supportive. That's what I recommend, and keep loving the person. Okay, and for the elderly who are shut in during these hard corona-laden times, what do you recommend? Uh, (laughs) Make a list of things to do. And and keep positive. That's what I recommend. And That's when 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 do you foresee uh, us getting out of this thing? Uh, I'm changing my prediction. I thought it was going to be uh, May. I don't know, and maybe longer. It turns um, out I'm not going back to work soon. Oh really? What happened? Linda said if I go to work, she won't let me come home. <laughs> Wait a minute. Listen, I think I think you uh well, you'll discuss it with Linda. Uh you 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 got responsibilities, you know. Uh part of the deal is people are feeding people. That means that's it means you're essential. She said she's willing to live without money. Uh, really? She says she knows somebody who could give us money. Well, maybe, maybe she's maybe she ought to get uh, re- reacquainted with reality. Maybe. All right, I'm just um, kidding. I'm just kidding. Say good night. Um, it's going to be on in a second. So, I mean, when are you going to listen to the show? Are you going to listen as soon as we hang up, or are you going to listen tomorrow morning? I usually, I'm going to. Ch- I'll probably listen while walking tomorrow. It's I'll a- go for a walk. I, I think it's going to rain them. Um, I don't know. Um, anyway, everybody, please stay strong out there. Toodles for Chris and everybody, please stay healthy out there. All right. Stay, okay. stay strong, dopey nation and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found dopey about two weeks ago and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious and it's just gotten me through some really hard times and Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. 
it's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune. y'all hear this makes it through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want I, if not I know it kind of sucks alright uh, really appreciate it thanks y'all